Okay. <clears throat> yeah, there's one right there. No, right there. I made enough. I think I made enough. Yeah. In Reno? In Okay. We'll start. So the yeah. One day when we have a lot more money, we'll buy a professional printer. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. <laughs> no, I could not have. That's right. Yes. Yeah. One jet print ink at a time is like forty-five minutes of printing. It's like so long. So okay, good. We'll start with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you preserved it for us, Lord, and that we have it. We can study it, Lord, that you love us. Um, Lord, you are our kind Father, and you have spoken to us. Your word, Lord, you've spoken to us through your Son, and you've given us the Holy Spirit to help understand these things. So we ask for your help, even now, Lord, that you um, help us to know what it is that you have done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So, as stated, we're going to talk about the transmission and translation of the Bible. So, uh, this first section right here, important text and translations. Well, first of all, my harvest party, the, the whiteboard's now the harvest party board. Like, donate candy here. So, I figured I might as well just, yeah, just put it on paper. So, we're good, because I got it, right? Like, right here. All right, so these are, yeah, so these are just all terms that I'll, like, once defined, hopefully it can use freely, be on the front page. So Masoretic Text is the Hebrew Bible. We talked about that. Dead Sea Scrolls, hopefully you've heard about that. They're kind of famous. Okay, so Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of writings that included the Bible. The Syriac Text. The Syriac Text is the Aramaic translation of the Bible. So in the time of Jesus' um, in day, they spoke three primary languages. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And um, most synagogues, so that would be like a local church for the town, would have the Masoretic text or a Hebrew Bible. Um, most, um, many churches, churches and then Hebrew synagogues further out would have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation because they didn't know Hebrew. And the majority of... Um, the culture, especially the Hebrew culture, spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Hebrew is starting to get lost a little bit. So if you were a scholar, you learned Hebrew. Um, if you were um, just speaking the street vernacular, it would be Aramaic. And so the Syriac text is one copy of an Aramaic translation of the Bible. It's helpful to us. I'll tell you why later. And then there's the Vulgate. 
So, okay, okay, so like the Dead sea, the Masoretic text, Syriac text, Septuagint, those are BC writings. And then fast forward hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, in fact, throw a thousand on there, years, and you're at the um, Vulgate here. So it's that printed, it was written, so this is the Latin translation. So when the church of Rome, they spoke Latin primarily, so they translate into Latin. That's the Vulgate, 300, and then Textus Receptus, 1500s. So that was a Greek New Testament compiled by Erasmus. Erasmus. If you know anything about Luther and Erasmus, it's that same Erasmus that Luther was arguing with. So, okay, so Old Testament transmission. So uh, ancient Near East is where most of this is coming out of. So I had a picture of a map of the ancient Near East. Um. Some people call it the Fertile Crescent. It's where, whether if you believe the Bible or not, um, or you're evolutionist, you say most of humanity, come on now, originated, nope, okay, guess not. Originated in the Fertile Crescent there. Okay, whatever. So that's Africa, and they say crescent because if you make a crescent moon. So primarily, the ancient Near East was centered around these major rivers. So you've got the Nile, and then you've got, I forget their names. I should know them really well. Yeah, Tigris and Euphrates, right? And that's where all the big groups came out of. And then you start moving your way into Greece. And so they're all the world superpowers of that time were in that kind of crescent. So wars, wars, and more wars. So, okay. so the ancient Near East is what we're talking about here. Um, and so they say that, obviously, that we have like early, early writings, and humanity's been around longer than the early writings. And so there must have been some amount of oral tradition. Now, as a Western society, we don't appreciate oral tradition quite the way other cultures do. Because, you know, we have like the telephone game, right, where one person like says in one ear, one ear, and then by the time it gets back around, it should be a garbled mess. It doesn't help that people are intentionally garbling it up, right? Um, but in, like, there's actually some societies still in Africa who have oral tradition, and they have people dedicated to memorizing, like, these tales of their history, and they're, like, very accurate if you go from, like, person to person in these African societies. So if people are not intentionally trying to gibberish the, the message, oral tradition actually doesn't do too bad. So, now, in terms of oral tradition, so consider this. So, the bullet's on the first page. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, backwards. Okay, so page one. I've, I numbered them this week. Thank you. So, on bottom page one. So, consider this. So, Adam lives 930 years, which is like coming up on... His century. So Adam lives 930 years. Okay, and if you follow the genealogies before the flood, chances are Adam knew Methuselah for 66 years. So Methuselah could have had many, 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 many conversations with Adam. Because you kind of think of like, this kind of stops talking about Adam after about chapter 4, right? And, and it talks about like all his descendants. Well, but Adam was around during that time as well, watching the big mess that he created. Um, and then, so Methuselah would have known Noah, and then Noah lived to be 950 years. 
um, 350 of those years after the flood, so he would have known Abraham's grandfather for 30 years. And Abraham's grandfather would have known Abraham, you would think. So, so, the chance, so we're talking about one, two, three people. And it just has to get from one person to the second person to the third person. And you have this message contained with oral tradition. Before we were at, like, at the time when writing is starting. So by the time we get to the time of Abraham, there's written records. They have records. Receipts, mostly. That's mostly what survives history is receipts. Okay, so, um, but then you might say, like, well, how do we know what happened in Genesis 1? Who was there to see it? God. So, at some point, you're going to, like, if God, if this is God's revelation, like, he's going to preserve his word. He's going to tell people. So when Moses is up, or, well, when Moses, well, maybe it's up. Maybe he's when he's in Moab. When he's in Moab, he's about to go over to um, the promised land, and he's writing down the scripture for them. Like, God is informing him of what happened in Genesis 1, and maybe Genesis 2, Genesis 3, 4, 5, right? So, God is there um, superintending it. All scripture is God-breathed. Okay, and in terms of, so, I have, like, you see that picture there of a limestone Kish tablet? 3500 B.C., that's really old. And so, like, that's just the earliest writing that we found. doesn't mean that, they weren't writing sooner than that. It's just the earliest that we have found. And so, and it's kind of interesting because you have this word Genesis, you know, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which means genealogy. And so, like, th- there's, like, these moments in Genesis. So it starts off in chapter 2 and then in periodic points throughout the book of Genesis. Like, these are the genealogies of, these are the genealogies of. And that word g- Genesis is, like, it's almost, in, in later generations, Genesis would be, like, a written record of who's who and who came from who. And so there's, there's um, some people suppose that maybe that's even referring to the fact that there are written records that they had access to, just by the word itself. Okay, so fourth millennia, you have the Sumerians. That's the earliest writing that we found. And so a lot of it was just like the Egyptians pic- pictographic. And so you see pictures and they see letters and sounds. So, And then um, they got obviously more advanced because if you want to write anything substantial, pictures is probably not the way to go about it. All right, so then, so, one of the big point here is, but, like, writing preceded Moses by 1,500 years. And then they, like, if Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, he's going to have a very well-rounded education. And so he would have been familiar with multiple writings, multiple languages, probably. So he's definitely not, I mean, yeah, I guess he was kind of some, Hick Shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. But he was also like a well-trained Hick. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the fact that Moses writes is no surprise to any historians. Okay. So then, writing styles. So you see, so just kind of, I think it's interesting just to kind of look at these things. I didn't know this before I started studying a seminary. So there's like um, Hebrew and then there's Hebrew. So the first script here is early Hebrew. So now, the restrictions are you're writing with clay tablets, you got little punch stencils, things like that, and you want your writing to be pretty straightforward. And so these are the symbols of the original um, Hebrew alphabet. And so we have writings, like using these letters, and then um, it advances to a more sophisticated form later. But so when people... So there's this field, it's called textual criticism. When you think there's a mistake in the copying... You say, where did this mistake come from? We're talking like 
like sounds wrong or something like that, or that looks wrong. Like not only do they have to consider like maybe like the Hebrew alphabet, the way that we see it was confusing, you know, some letters confuse them, but like they even have to think about okay, what was the original alphabet? How could you have gotten confused with the letters with the original alphabet? So so you have it. So we don't I don't think we have any actual like whole huge sets of manuscripts using this old early Hebrew writing style. Okay. So um, it changed around 300 B.C. Two, page three, if you ever looked at Hebrew, this is it. Um, in Hebrew, you read backwards. You go right to left. So it's like, so it's Aleph, yeah. <laughs> so Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, Hevav, Zion, Heth, Teth. So, and then, remember when she said, yeah, like, jot or tittle? So look at, um, in the first line, there's like, hey, and there's chet, C-H-E-I-T. And you, do you see the difference between these two letters? It's like, it's like very subtle. It's like whether or not the second stroke touches the top line. Like, that's the difference between those two letters. And then while you're looking at that one, look at the very bottom left-hand side to Tav. And then, yet again, you've kind of got the same shape, except for there's a curl at the bottom. So, like, Jesus is saying, like, all those little, like, whether it connects or not, or whether like, you got the curl in there, like, everything that God intended by Scripture is going to be fulfilled, not a letter is going to be dropped. And then, um, if you look at the middle row all the way to the right, there's the Yod, which is a little... And it's when you write it, it's like a little swipe. It's like a, uh, almost like a parenthesis. And it's like small, easy to miss. And that would be like the jot and tittle. It would be kind of something like that. Okay. So this is what they call square script. This is if you have a Hebrew Bible today, it's going to use this writing. And it's confusing. So um, the Hebrews, they only use... So you figure like no paper. They use papyrus, papyrus... Um, but that wasn't like that common because it got easily like papyrus doesn't last very long, so they take like hides of animals and like these make these really nice hides and they they'd write it in, and so like if you've got very expensive writing material, then you're gonna try to write things as like succinctly as possible, and so the Hebrews would only write their consonants and they wouldn't put in their verbs, so it's just all the consonants, and so you would know. Like, so, and then do some words share consonants? Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they, yeah. But if you knew the language, you would not be confused. Like, you know, like, there's, like, only one word would fit here, and it would be this word, and only one word. So even though they share consonants, like, one contextually makes complete sense, the other one does not. And so if you were being trained in Hebrew, so this is, like, uh, getting close to the first, like, ADs, when Christ was born, where they're not speaking Hebrew as much, like, one of the things you'd be trained in is, like, the actual, like, okay, here's the vocabulary. But they began to realize, like, um, it's going to be kind of hard. If you're not using it on a daily basis, knowing which word was which word, it was going to be hard. So they decided they were going to put in the vowels. But for two, there's kind of two things going on at this moment. First of all, they have a very, very high view of Scripture, so they don't want to make any changes to, like, the structure of it. It's like they just want to leave it kind of the way they like have a picture perfect almost as it were copy of scripture. Um, first of all, and second of all, from the scribal communities that we have examples of, they have like this very, very, very 
complex way of keeping track of everything. So like when they'd write a scroll, one of the things you do is you'd count in to like the halfway mark. So you count the letters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So scroll and you and you had to know like what the middle letter would be. And they check it. And so like there it is. And if it's the right letter, you're good to go. And if it's the wrong letter, bummer. <laughs> like you're gonna go back and like scrap it and start all over again. And so like so you can understand then like why they're not wanting to add like more space fillers, adding in uh, vowels. So then they came up with this idea that maybe instead of like putting the vowels in between the consonants where they belong, like maybe you just fit them up above, below, and like, kind of like in any white space in between them. So they kind of just fill them out with dots. And so that's what they did. It was brilliant. Um, so um, it just makes reading Hebrew that much harder. So now look on the bottom of page three. So there, here, like the so you see. Aleph, it's the first letter in the alphabet. And they have like, so I'm reading left to right. So there's like dot, dot, dash, and then a dash with a line, so kind of like a T, and then a long dash. Those are all their different sounds for ah. So long, like, like really short ah, and then like long ah, and then like ah, ah, like a long one like that. Okay, so like, so like that's how they do it, with dots. And then you see on the second line, all the way to the left, there's like that little dash mark up there as well. That's a good example. And then look at the O, so one, two, three, fourth column down, reading left to right this time. You see a little itsy bitsy dot next to the Aleph. Yep, that was that's an O. And on the bottom, ooh, so that's like their U sound, like there's a dot inside the that hockey stick looking thing. And so that, so like hockey stick with a dot in it makes one sound. Hockey stick with a dot with not in it makes another sound. So that's how they put in the verbs. So when you read Hebrew, if you're like so fortunate to do so, not only are you reading left to right or right to left, you're reading like up and down at the same time. So that's like crazy. So, so that's what they did. So yeah. Like and like, it's like one of the things is just really fastidious about their writings. So it's pretty cool. All right. So the scribes, who are these people? Top of page four. Okay. So in the Old Testament, we don't have any. We, I mean, we obviously have indication that there's scribes out there. Because you have people writing things down for kings, and then you have the prophets. The prophets, one of the things that the prophets did is write scripture, and you figure, you know, there's that scene in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah writes a letter to the king, and the king just like, like, just kind of slices it up and throws it into the fire, and Jeremiah goes, bummer, and God says, mm-hmm, write it again. And so, like, he writes the whole thing out again, the letter to the king. So, apparently, the, the prophets were involved in it. And then in Deuteronomy, there's that, you know, when a king comes, one day in the future, there'll be a king. And, you know, one of the things the king's supposed to do is write down the entire law. I don't think any king did that. Like, they just got out of their homework, all of them, right? Got wars to fight, wives to marry, all these things, right? So these, uh, they didn't stop and go like, hmm, what does God require of me? Nope, didn't do it. And so, and, and then, um, so they were supposed to have written down the entire, like, five books of the Bible, that would be the law. And then there's supposed to be, like, and then there's supposed to be a priest who kept, like, who was, like, in charge of that process. The priest was supposed to be checking and making sure he, the king was getting it right. So it makes us think that, um, 
when this class, like this job class of scribe shows up, it was probably either the priests or like supervised by priests. So, scribes. And so then you have like this other scene towards the end of like Second Kings where like it's Josiah and his reforms, and they have these reforms simply because they had lost their Bibles. <laughs> but the, there's like a preserved copy and like, you know, surprise, surprise in the temple. <laughs> where you think there would be a copy of the Bible, but they, you know, they move, you know, move something like your garage, right? You move something, move something, like, oh my gosh, I forgot we had this. Like, it's just the Bible. <laughs> so there they are. And so they, they read the whole thing, and, you know, at that point, they probably start copying scriptures again. And um, so somewhere between, like, we don't have any, like, explicit reference. It's just assumed that people are copying the Bible down. But sometime between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so the intertestamental period, um, Jesus' day, he starts talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And also, like, so like, all these groups also popped up out of nowhere. First of all, there's no Pharisees in the Old Testament, now it's Pharisees. And there's Sadducees. And there's these scribes, and then there's these lawyers. And like, who are all these people? Well, so like, there's this job class of the scribes that just kind of appears on the scene. And, so, and they're the ones who are fastidiously copying the Bible, and probably sending it out so people have fresh copies of the Bible in you know dispersion because there's Jews all over the place. So you have this, this scribal group that's working. Um, we'll talk. Did I talk? I think we talk. Yeah, about who the other groups are in a minute. All right. So um, now the scribal group that we pretty much know about are these people. This group called the Masoretes. Okay, and they wrote the Masoretic text. And this group comes along the scene. So they, we. The Masoretes as a class, like the earliest we can trace them down to is like in like the 100 AD, so we don't have them like all the way back in Jesus' time. We just kind of assumed perhaps that that happened. Um, and so there was kind of, so for the longest time, like the closest um, uh, like manuscript we had of like the Old Testament was like around the time of the Masoretes, and we didn't have anything earlier that changed with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but we do have translations that are older. So, like, our our Hebrew texts only, like, our manuscripts only go back to, like, the early um, hundreds. But we have translations that date probably earlier than that. So, um, they're really helpful. So, you have the Septuagint, which is in Greek, and the Syriac, which is in Aramaic. So, they all confirm that they had, like, this common Bible that they were translated from. Okay. So... Uh, and not to mention, like, all the New, New Testament's use of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So, okay. So you have these scribes, they're doing their job, they're doing it well. Um, let me show you. Um, so the Masoretes, they, I mean, I wonder if there's even, like, some people who, like, hold to that group nowadays. It went up into, like, the thousands AD, for sure. And so, like, I mentioned they had that thing where they count to the middle of the scroll and go... Does, it match, does the letter match? That was, that was the first thing they did. And the other thing they would do, among actually among many things, is think of like footnotes and endnotes in your books. Like they would, they had like this list of endnotes and footnotes that they would also copy down and check. And then they had like all these markings in the sides. Oh, let me pull it up here. Markings on the sides. Okay. So, okay, so this little marker right here, if you're going to like 
it's like the, if you're going to read the Bible in a year kind of thing, like here's one of your divisions. You know, read from here. Okay, and then there's markings, markings, markings. Okay, so then this side right here, there's like this margin where they kept marginal notes. If they ever like got a copy and they said, huh, I don't remember that being there, they wouldn't change it. They'd keep what they thought the mistake was. And instead, they go off to the side and say, I think there's a problem right here. And they'd refer to it. Because they, they don't want to be the ones, like, kind of, if everybody's trying to fix the mistakes, then you don't have any tracking of the mistakes. So they kept an index of any mistakes that they think they've found. So you have, like, this sidebar with possible corrections in it. And then um, they would also, see, now this is, this is us. This is, like, 21st century, 20th century people. Um, this is comparing like manuscripts against manuscripts. So if there's like anything potentially different or there is a translation that seemed to suggest another word, we just make note of it just to make sure. And so this little symbol right here, if I don't know if you can see it right there, that's the Syriac. So like, for example, if the Syriac had something, to, so Syriac, et cetera, in these locations, there might be a difference. But um, we'll talk about what the, the nature of those differences. So... They kept, so they just kept track of all these things. And then they'd have, and then they also get in there and add these other things for like, because most people didn't read it, so you'd, most Hebrews heard scripture, didn't read it. And so they have even way like, you know, intonate here, and then like pause here. And they have like all these symbols that you translate, and it would like explain it. So, and the scribes would keep track of all of it. So, it was a huge job. Now, in terms of manuscripts, then, we don't have a lot of manuscripts compared to the New Testament. Compared to other ancient texts, we have a lot of manuscripts. But compared to um, what we have in the New Testament, we don't have a lot because one of the other jobs of the scribes is to retire like old, fraying scrolls or anything they think might be corrupted, like, and there might be like a problem reading it, they just would take care of it, remove it, put it in a clay jar, throw it into some trash heap or something like that, or bury it. Um, so, so they were like they were systematically removing bad texts from it, and the New Testament church didn't care that much. They just kept spreading it, like go go. And so, um, yeah. So the fact that they're like there's people systematically retiring like frayed copies um, kind of makes it harder to find them. So. <sighs> Until the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, spoiler alert, is trash. It's like basically retired scrolls that got moved away. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. mistakes. Okay, so on the top of page five... So this is a list of manuscripts. And so um, 972 fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those date between 200 BC and 180. Um, and then we have like this category in textual criticism, like older than like 1100. 1100 is kind of like this turning point where we all of a sudden we have like this explosion of manuscripts. You see that 3,000 plus. So for a while there's like these seven manuscripts that were in great condition. So there's like, you know, pieces and parcels, and like, uh, they had like this silver amulet that had a piece of Leviticus on it. And they, so they had all these things that, like fragments, but there was like these seven manuscripts that 
um, people were using for the translations. And um, I say here, most modern Bibles are compiled using 31 of the best manuscripts. So they just kind of conglomerate them together and compare them. Um, because you really don't want to write anything with like having to cross-compare, just to make sure, cross-compare 3,000-plus manuscripts, just to make sure all the things work out. So they chose 31 of the best and did it. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls was important because um, it was able to let us say, like, okay, so we have, like, a really great copy here. It's, like, 1100 AD, but, like, is it the same Bible they had way back when? And so they all of a sudden get, like, this massive, like, Dead Sea Scrolls, like, this time warp where you're, like, in the BCs and, like, ooh, Pretty much everything is matching up picture perfect. And it's like, like, which is, I think, a testament to the scribal community and how well they were doing their work. So, um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, so I said there's these three groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. So, uh, Sadducees, they're the, like, the religious power people. So they had the high priests and the priesthood and they took care of the temple and they're, like, they didn't like the Romans, but they're the ones convincing with the Romans to maintain power, and they're all upset when Jesus comes around because they're not going to have power, and that's going to be a problem. And then they also were like kind of theologically liberal, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. You haven't heard that one before, right? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so that's that group. And so, and then everybody was getting like all upset at the, the corruption of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, so like up cropped the Pharisees. Or like the people's champion, the religious people from like your local community. So like, um, so that's the Pharisees. So yeah, you think of Pharisees because when you read the Bible, you think of them as like they're the religious power. When in fact, the Sadducees were religious power. The Pharisees were kind of upstarts of themselves, and they tended to be like not in Jerusalem, but they did show up in Jerusalem. When they're in Jerusalem, they're usually fighting and arguing with Sadducees. Um, but then when like Jesus shows up, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So then they're like, all of a sudden they get along with each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, so you have these Pharisees. And then there's like this little group called the Essenes, which would be like not even noteworthy to us, except for the, they're the ones who kept the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we found their trash, and now they're a really important community. So <laughs> consider that when you're throwing your stuff away, your receipts. Uh, so the Essenes, so they're ascetics. And like, so like one of the things that, so, you know, if the Pharisees reacted by just starting their own, like, kind of religious clubs in, like, the towns, the Essenes reacted by just leaving town, like, just up and going. And so they tended to, like, their communities were in these, like, really barren, rural, not really fun places to live because they thought that, that was, like, the holy thing to do is live in barren, dry places. Um, but we're kind of glad they did. Barren and dry is really good for preserving papyrus and stuff like that. So, yeah, so... So they're a relatively small sect and aesthetics. So Dead Sea Scrolls were sealed clay pots buried in caves discovered in 1947 by two goat herds. And then once you find one cave, it makes you think, are there more? Why, well, yes, there is. They found 11 more, like 10 more after that, or 11 more, 11 more caves. So, and so far, I think they found them all. We have 972 manuscripts. Now, that's not the only thing the Dead Sea Scrolls had. They had lots of other writings. Um, but, you know, we're kind of concerned about the Bible stuff. So, uh, so, Dead Sea Scrolls. So, being now in the 21st century, you can actually look at them all. See.
Okay, so this is so there's this deadseascrolls.org.il, and you can go and look at any Dead Sea Scroll you want to look at. But here's like their featured scrolls. Okay, and so here's Genesis. This is the first page of the Bible, and then you've got like so like good quality it's on leather. You can see like the animal part there, right? The skin. So good copy of the Ten Commandments. Really nice handwriting. Oh, and this is beginning to kind of look like that older Hebrew script a little bit. And there you go. Uh, frontlets, what do they call them? Like, keep them on the frontlets of your eyes and they bind little things to themselves. Okay, and like, and the Essenes were like really into like every fastidious little detail of the law as well as Pharisees. So they had like the little frontlets right there. So they have a little piece of scripture in this little thing tied to your person. And then this right here is not Hebrew. This is Greek. So they had Septuagint stuff there. And then lots of non-biblical scrolls. So lots and lots and lots. Community, yeah, community rules. So yeah, if you ever are so tempted to look at them, check it out. So these are like good ones. So this is on the good end. And then there's okay end. And then you have stuff like this. Okay, could you imagine being the scholar? You're probably having a geeky good time at this, but be the one going through this. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess get bigger. Yeah. So, go, yeah, did I mention that someone's trash? There you have it. So, they have lots of these, like, fragments. And then they have, like, all these unidentified fragments because, like, how do you figure out where in the Bible these are? So, they're still working on it. So, yeah. So, if you're into puzzles, yeah, if you're into puzzles, boy, do we have the biggest puzzle for you. Yeah, and there's, and arguably, like, the scrolls and the manuscripts that we're looking at, like, you know, like, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, they they, have these basements full of, like, all these artifacts that no one ever looks at. Like, there's actually some truth to that. Apparently, like, there's, like, these... They have more things to go through than they have people to go look at them. And there's just, like, piles upon piles of piles of manuscripts and, like, artifacts that were just dug up when great ex- ex- archaeologists were exploring everywhere. And so they're still mulling through it. Um, even recently, they just found a, another copy of Leviticus somewhere. So that was, like, really old and Surprise, surprise, actually matched up really well with what we had. So, actually, by match up, I think it was like perfect, like perfect match of what we had or something like that. So, still finding stuff. Okay, and then, so they had every Hebrew book of the Bible except for Esther. Conspiracy theory time. Why? So, it's like, so it could be one um, argument from silence, you just didn't find it, so don't make a big deal out of it. Um, or two, maybe they didn't like the the uh, Purim, like this new festival, and they're like these ascetics and like these party festivals, like maybe not. So like there's like there's all these theories about why they didn't find Esther there, but we have Esther from other places, so it's okay. So now errors when you say so, especially like in the Hebrew, like because the Hebrew culture kept track of their errors for us is really kind of them, and because they did such a great job, like following through with it. Um, like, we don't have as many errors in the Old Testament as we do in the New Testament. But, like, when we say there's, like, lots of these errors, what are the nature of these errors? So most 
errors, or we'll now actually, from here on out, call them variants. We won't, like, give any pejorative term to it. So it's not errors, or variants. Okay, so there's, like, unintentional, unintentional changes. So, okay, so here are, like, the big ones. These are, like, account for, like, the vast, vast, vast majority of the differences that we have. So there's, like, you put in the wrong letter, U versus V. And when I showed you the he and the teth and the tau, that all look the same, Right, so you think English just has a hard, they had it a little bit worse. Homophony, homophony, sounds like. So like, if like, there's probably indications that there might be like someone reading it as you're writing. So someone would be reading it as people are writing. And like, and then you heard someone said it with a long O instead of the short O and you wrote the long O. Um, totally legit. I do that all the time as a teacher. Where I'm like right on the board and then like someone says something and I write down exactly what they say. So there's those, there's haplography. So haplography is what happens when you're reading a boring book and like, didn't I read this like five times? Like, and your like, eyes going back to the same spot over and over again. Yeah, that's haplography. Um, so when your eyes skipped over a phrase or you read it again, oh, or dictography is when you write the same word twice because you like going back to the same thing. Metathesis, switching two letters, which... People do that all the time anyways. And then fusion, so two words being, so like um, like compound words, making compound words where no compound word was intended, and then fusion be opposite, word being broken into two. Six, yeah. So those are like that, like, so like stuff that we're all capable of doing. That's the majority of the differences. And then there's intentional changes. So we suspect that there were these intentional changes. Um, changes in spelling or grammar. So if like things start becoming like a word, like there's kind of evidence, even like mostly in the yeah, was that hell? This yeah, when like vocab is changing a little bit, they change the letters. You see that, um, and then not make a change, like mark that they changed it or something like that. Modifying rare or unclear words. So, you know, King James Version is getting more and more archaic as every year passes on. So, like, you might, like, re-up the words. They would do that um, once in a while, depending on your scribe. And then um, some people s- suggest, although this this one's actually kind of a hot topic, that people would re- so redact is when you go fix something behind. Like, you go back through something and fix it. Like, they were updating the names of the towns, like match like current geography or something like that. Like some people just assume they're doing it. I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of that one, but because I don't think there's any like hardcore evidence that that's what they did. They just assume that they did it. Okay. So um, some examples. So you got your Bibles. I'll give you an example. Let's start with Ruth one one. Give you some examples of some big problems we have to solve. Okay, so Ruth 1.1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the county of, uh, country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, the contested part that we have these variants, we don't know what's there. Some manuscripts don't have the two sons. 
is have sons. So were there two or not? And so, like, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, they have two sons. So, like, they, Septuagint had older manuscripts than we did. And they had two sons. And then, oh, by the way, how many, how many wives were there? Like, the two wives? And then, yeah. So, like, so, like, okay, here we go. We got these, this, this, pro, these variants. Like, are there two sons or are there not two sons? You can look at the context, like, there were two sons. Right. And they got, like, the two names, like, they have the names of the son, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, duh, yeah. Okay, so, problem solved. But, I mean, that would technically be considered an error. So, okay, so there you go. There's, like, a classic problem. Like, this, the vast majority of them fall into that category. Um, and then, Second Samuel 12, 31. Okay, so yeah, this one's this one's great. It's like David at his finest right here, like David at like another moment of his finest. Okay, so you uh, you got this David and Bathsheba thing happen, and then like the next chapter um, at the very end. So there's like this camp of Rabbah, and Joab's going to conquer it, capture it after this huge siege. He says, "Hey, David, you might want to be here for this one, otherwise they might make me king." And David's like, "Be right over," um, and this is against. The Ammonites, who are vicious people. And then, um, so verse 31, And David brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so there is a question that if you change like one letter to another letter, it's not work at the kilns, it's pass to the kilns. And so there's this big debate, well, somewhat a debate, uh, did David make them, like, throw them in the kilns? Or did he make them work in the kilns? So, like, pass to the fire. Which is another word they use for ch- children's sacrifice with Moab. When, like, so they're, ch- are Molech. So they were, like, sacrificing children. They made the children pass to the fire. And so here's David potentially doing that. Now, if you read, sorry, Brianna and I had, like, we dug into this one for a long time. So if you read old commentaries, you'd be like, all the old commentaries assume that David like put all these people like like in the fire accounts or something like that, and like and when the, and then like you read like modern like commentaries and like no no change the letter and you're good he just made them slaves so what is it so then usually like the older commentaries say stuff like this is when David was acting like a jerk and he was like out there like killing Uriah and taking Bathsheba and like, and then, and, and they usually point to, because like that whole story like spans a whole bunch of time before, so they assume that Rabbah happened in the middle of like his whole uh, Bathsheba thing. And remember that point when he says like, someone took someone's little lamb and like they ate it for dinner and like, what should they do? And they're like, kill them. Like, really, dude? Like, really? For, for a little lamb, you're going to kill someone? And, so, like, yeah, so, like, all these commentaries, like, David's just, like, his soul is rotting in his heart, and he's, like, turned into this vicious person, and that's their explanation for it. And then nowadays, like, in all the modern translations, they change it. It's like, oh, change the letter, and you're good. So, what is it? Who knows? But, like, um, that's, I think, is that? So, he's just, like, just do the law, yeah. Yeah. 
take take all the person's food and, and money and then, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, so they have all these things, yeah. So what is it? So it's one of the ones like, is it a mistake? Is it not? And like until like more evidence shows up, they won't. And so and then you notice like, okay, in my ESV they have a little footnote telling me to look at this. Like, oh, you might want to know that in Hebrew the word is actually technically passed through. So like, okay. So my theory is so my theory the the theory is. Um, if you think you've got an issue, just be honest about it. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to hide it. We just, like, as a community, like, we've done, I think, a very good job of not trying to hide things that we think that might be potential problems or mistakes. We just say, here they are for your consideration. So. Yeah. Yeah. Although, one of the things they say, like, if you had a Bible, like a good study Bible, you could look down and see the footnote. One of the things they've been noticing is, like, with these new apps, you can't see those as easily, and you don't actually follow every footnote that you see at all, right? So you maybe aren't as aware of them as they have. So they're, like, they're like in, so the question is, like, how should we build our apps so people can see the footnotes better, so that we can still be honest about it? Okay, um, take five, and then we'll do New Testament. Any questions? Yeah, I should probably say. Yes. And so, for some things, such as footnotes. No, you're good to go, yeah. Hey, Mike. Oh, I totally forgot to mention that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's oh. what they Yeah, I'll mention that.
Okay, five minutes. Time. Yeah, one of the when I was thinking of the Hellenistic one was I remember I read B. A. Parsons' The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and it was only the short one of those big ones. Yeah. And he was talking about in that period, it wasn't because of like the four different mm-hmm. uh, kinds of love in agape, phileo, and the, yeah. um, that uh, because of their culture that was very um, masculine, they wanted to take out whichever one it is that's more feminine. Agape. Yeah. And they replaced it with phileo. Phileo, yeah. And Interesting. changed the, the meaning of yeah. it. Thing, so then they had to go back and say what's really supposed to be in here. Yes, good. So I guess the backup, just a little bit. So I missed the one Mike mentioned, the euphemistic changes. So like, uh, so we see this one between Second Samuel and First Chronicles. So the, uh, in in Samuel he refers to Baal as Boset, which means shame, and then in Chronicles they refer to Baal as Baal, and Baal like means Lord or Master, and um, so Baal was was one of the pagan gods. So what is possibly that? Um, they didn't want, like, during the time of Samuel's day, they didn't want to actually give Baal the respect that he desired, which is calling a master, and so they used shame instead. It was like their way of sticking it to Baal, I guess. So, yeah. <clears throat> one of the, I think one of the interesting things about this, too, so and this is going to be true for Old Testament New Testament, like, the leading scholars in these fields are not Christians. They're just curious, secular people. Yeah, or, or I guess, and then a lot of Jewish people as well. Um, I mentioned that I got to spend that, that time with that archaeologist, and he'd talk about, like, some of the other archaeologists he was dealing with, and, like, you know, they're the ones producing these works and then coming up with all these good things, like, things that we find, like, incredibly useful. And they just, just do not have curiosity. to be like, hmm. Oh yeah, if Christians don't do it, is it biased? Or if Christians do it, is it biased? I don't know. No, like the leading, like the leading, so lexicons, like uh, the word for dictionary. So lexicons, leading lexicons are written by not Christians. So we use them, they're great. So, so I guess I'm trying to say it's not an in-house kind of thing. It's not like we're just going to make it up our own thing here. Um, so, New Testament transmission. Okay, so when there's like it's almost like two different fields, like and like what you have to do when you're dealing with New Testament manuscripts. So there's the big differences between doing Old Testament textual criticism and the Old Testament is in the New Testament we have way, way, way more manuscripts than we do in the in the old, like way, like older and many more manuscripts. For the New Testament. So, yeah, so I say here the current count is 5,600. And, like, one, one of the people I kind of follow, his name's uh, Bill 
Wallace, and he's like he's been building this archive of um, scanning in the manuscripts. So kind of like what they did with the um, Desi Scrolls. He's been doing with uh, Greek New Testament manuscripts, and he's almost done. Um, they're just getting the last last couple percent scanned in, and so he says it's almost like it's almost like it's almost embarrassing like how extravagant our data set is. Like we have so much more than any other religion or any other ancient text, like in terms of like how close our manuscripts are to the original writings and then just how many we have. It's it's great. So he says it's almost embarrassing when you have to talk. It's like, yeah, you know, we have 5,600. So, okay. Um, so no other ancient text comes close. And then um, part of it was because there's like this explosion of manuscripts. Like people want to write this down and get them to new churches everywhere. So, I mean, we've got like them heading west and then north and then south and probably out to the east, although we haven't, have, we haven't found a whole bunch in that direction, but they had to have gone out that way because churches were being planted that way. So you just have this Bible like spreading out everywhere and quickly. And so like, so consider, it'd be like, um, if, you, if you say that like the Christian community was like kind of reforming and then reforming and then reforming its religion, like the further away it got, like just changing it, and like, okay, now Jesus is doing miracles. Okay, now Jesus is the Son of God. Now Jesus is basically God. So like, and they're just adding these changes in like one generation at a time. You'd have to like pull back all those manuscripts, make the changes, and send them back out. Like that would be like this monumentally impossible task. And we have 5,600 manuscripts, even, even though the Roman Empire tried to burn them all. So that's cool. So... So the five earliest copies we have to date, they're under a century to the early manuscripts. So they're written in like the 100, 200 ADs. And then uh, Bill Wallace is working on one that he thinks dates to like 90 AD, a gospel mark. So that's kind of like, so I think they just published that and read. He was like, we'll be out with it in like two years. And like, I think two years was last year. I didn't check. So there's one in the first century. Okay, so the big difference is we have a lot more to work with. The second big difference is there's a lot more scribal errors. A lot more to deal with, okay? Variants. Now, because the church is spreading fast, you're trying to get as many of these things written and out as you could as possible, so they're just doing it quickly. The church is persecuted, so they're trying to do it quickly and not like carefully, like, hey, can you double-check this for me? You're just getting these things out. And then there was actually no professional scribal class the way the Hebrews had it. Um, there's, there's evidence that there was a scribal class down in Alexandria, which is south around Egypt, and they had some type of scribal system. Um, but everyone else, not so much. So, definition on the page, uh, top of page 7. So, quote, a variant is simply the difference in wording found in a single manuscript or a group of manuscripts, either way, it's still only one variant, that disagrees with the base text. So the current estimate is that there are 400,000 variants in the collection of manuscripts. 400,000 mistakes or variations in the wordings. Which is, as Peter Enns, who is no friend of Christians, likes to point out, there's more errors than there are words in the New Testament. Which is kind of... Like, if you don't know what he's talking... Like, if you don't know what's going on, that sounds, like, intimidating. But if you know what's going on, you're like, oh, come on. You're just throwing numbers around to scare people. He's bullying. He likes, it's a bullying statement. Um, 
Because, like, what are the nature of those 400? Like, what percent of them actually make us like, oh, no, I wonder what this means. Like, less than 1%. That's not zero, but less than 1%. So, variants are just anything to change it. Like, all the ones I mentioned above, like, photography or haplography or, like, all these different things, um, those would count. And then, like, we have more mistakes because we have more manuscripts, which is also a problem. It just scaled up because you have a lot more to deal with. Okay. Oh, yeah. So they, so on the third paragraph, less than 1%, or to be precise, 1,438 of those variants cause any sort of viable problem. And by viable, they're like, hmm, actually, that's a good one. I wonder which one it is. Like, what would it be? And, and of those less than 1%, most of them are like boring as sawdust. Like, it's like not... It's like, if you're a geek, it's really exciting. If you're not, like, this changes nothing. Why are we going, spending so much time trying to work this one out? And, like, and then of the ones that, like, oh, so that's, like, less than 1%. Then you got, the, like, the, of those 1,400, like, boring, boring, boring. And then a subset of those, like, they're the ones that are actually kind of like, ooh, okay, this, this might change whether or not we uh, tame snakes or not. Like, it's, so there's no, so as I say, there's no cardinal doctrine. There's no key doctrine to Christianity that's affected by a variant. And we're just being kind, we're just being generous when we say that with um, no cardinal doctrine. We're, you can almost argue like no doctrine is affected, but like some people are really big about handling snakes, so we don't want to like put them out, and so we'll say no cardinal doctrine. So, um, and we'll look at some of those, or a couple of those. Okay. So, history of the manuscripts. So, in 382, although it finished in 405 AD, so in 382 AD, there's the Vulgate. Okay. So, Greeks, the common tongue, Greeks start losing power, Romans got the power, they start conquering people, and people stop speaking Greek so much and they start speaking Latin. And so then Latin is like, well, we better start getting this in Latin then. So they translate the Vulgate. And then fast forward a couple centuries, and then everybody's reading it in Latin. And so like the Greek New Testament, in a sense, um, was not as interesting as it used to be. The, uh, what do they call it? The Patristic Fathers, like all the, like Chrysostom, all these people who were doing the preaching, they all had these Greek manuscripts. They used them, they studied them, they talked about them. Um, but there was kind of like, they're like the pastors and the scholars, and they're the ones dealing with it. But far and large, like the Vulgate becomes the primary text, and then um, by the time you're getting to the 1500s, so we're like, I mean, we're talking about like the Catholic Church coming to like what we imagine the Catholic Church to be in around 1000 AD, um, and then add 500 years when things were starting to get really, really, really corrupt with the. But the uh, have you heard the Divine Comedies by Dante? Is Dante Dante right? Yeah. Where Dante was like this, like, was so excited to go to Rome and so excited to go see, like, this great holy city. And he goes there and, like, popes have live-in girlfriends and stuff like that. And he's just like, what? So he goes, so he goes home and, like, writes the Divine Comedies and, like, like, current, like, Tuesday, current church leaders were in hell. Like, he wrote them into hell. And it was quite the statement. And so, like, there was, like, this, there was, like, this huge disenfranchisement of, like, what was going on in Rome. So there's supposed to be this holy city. You go there and it's like, it's like, it's, in their doctrine, you cannot get married, so have a girlfriend. Like, that was kind of their way of dealing with it. 
and people were getting really upset about it. And so, like, so that's like kind of it's this turns because like you could feel the rumblings of the Reformation coming, um, not just from the people who wanted to purify the doctrine. So you have like the Luthers and Calvinists who want to purify, you know, get back to the original doctrine, because at that time, if you like, if you were like a priest in the 1500s and you were going to like study for a passage to give a homily, you wouldn't necessarily be studying the original scripture. You'd be studying what some dude over here said about some church father over here in the Latin Vulgate about it. You weren't going back to the original sources. And so to kind of correct that, so one of the people who had a problem with the Catholic Church was this guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam. And like and he would like he was like in England for a little bit and then he like had to go to like kind of go to France because things were getting kind of politically hot for him. And he would write, like, so in, in his own right, in a sense, Erasmus was a reformer in the fact that he wanted reform in the church. He just didn't want to do it by breaking away from the church. He wanted to try to stay in it and fix it. And then at the same time, he didn't want to change the doctrine of the church. So he didn't, so when Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and like all these other leaders, just the big three, but when they started like saying, no, 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 the doctrine's wrong. Like if you go to scripture, this, like, there's no proof of this stuff in scripture. Um, Erasmus was, is like, it was kind of like one bridge too far for him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And so um, Erasmus and Luther Erasmus apparently did not want to confront Luther. It just wasn't in his, like, he just didn't want to do it because, like, he wanted to fix the church. But he felt like it was one bridge too far. So he, finally enough, he got enough pressure from his friends to finally take on Luther. And so he wrote Luther this public letter that was supposed to be, like, the death nail to Luther. Like, here's, like, you know, here's what you're doing. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. And Luther, who's, like, Mr., like, fire back, like, like, he's a scrapper. And, like, he just, like, shoot back with the letter right away doesn't respond for a year. It's like a year of silence. And everybody's like, he got him. They got Luther. Like, Luther's like, I don't know what to do with this letter from Erasmus. And then Luther, like, um, uh, releases his treatise on the bondage of the will, which is, like, probably one of his most famous works, where he, like, addresses Erasmus. And in his, not in his prologue, in his epilogue, in his epilogue, he thanks Erasmus for, like, so, which is kind of a big thing, because, like, one of the things they did back then is name called each other in their letters. So they're just, like, calling each other names. Like, you fool, you fool, you this, you that. There's, like, don't do it. But there's this, like, there's this website, the online um, Luther insult generator. Like, just, like, his insults that he'd come with and randomly generate. And so, but at the end, he says, he says, Erasmus, I consider you to be, like, one of the smartest people around. I consider you to, like, you, unlike all these other bumbling idiots I've been dealing with, you understand the core issue. You understood it. And that's why I felt like you deserved, like, this treatise, right? And he says, and, like, you, like, you have been my superior in so many other fields, and I asked that one day you'd be my superior in even this one. Like, just asking for repentance on his part. And what he was referring to is the fact that Erasmus, to, like, combat the church, he's like, Erasmus says, get back to the Greek text. So Erasmus goes on this tour and collects a bunch of Greek texts and compiles it. Now, he's got a deadline. Like, he told the Pope, like, one Pope said, someone tried to do it before him. The Pope didn't like it. So he got a shot at doing it. And the Pope was going to give him the check okay on this, the scripture. And so he was on this deadline. So he got, like, almost, he got, like, a manuscript for every passage, except for the last few verses of Revelation. He couldn't find any. So he writes down, um, like, he, translate, he translates backwards 
because he's a genius, translates backwards from the Vulgate. Like, here's in Latin, here's what should be in Greek, and he just did it and said, by the way, I just back-translated this one so we can have a Greek manuscript. And so Erasmus makes the Greek manuscript that goes out to all the reformers who read it, study it, reformulate their doctrine, and in comes the Reformation. It's crazy. So, all right, so, and then from, so now that, that, Collection of Greek manuscripts is called the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus, the received text. Okay, now the Textus Receptus then, so one of the things the reformer said is the Bible needs to be in the language of the people. So they start translating it into English. And they translate from the Greek manuscripts. So like Luther's Bible came from, Greek, from Textus Receptus. The King James Version came from the Textus Receptus. And um, I have some other, wait have it written down. Uh, the Tyndale Bible and the Russian Synod Bible, so being major translations here, are based on this, this, this Bible that Erasmus created. Okay. Now, for no, so when we do it, so the Textus Receptus, nowadays we use like 200 manuscripts to like translate our modern versions. Okay. Now, there's like this kind of King James only camp. I don't know if you've ever talked to... I've talked to some people who are like, King James only, that's it. And it's like, do you realize that? Like, the last... Like, if you're saying, like, it's only King James... Like, like, is Erasmus going around just collecting one version of every manuscript? That's all he had time to do. And then he back-translated the back of Revelation? Like, are you sure? Like, this is, like, like the, like the version that you're going to stick to? Because like, after Erasmus did this, then there was, like, a re... Like, people were interested in finding these Greek manuscripts again. And so, like, they, so they started collecting more and more and more, and like, ever since the 1500s, now, now we have like 5,000. So nowadays we have like vastly more on hand than what Erasmus had access to, and so we translate accordingly. Okay, so um, we call, there's these families of manuscripts, top page 8. So this is like, of course, broad generalizations, but they're pretty good. So, um, so there's three main families to the Greek manuscripts. There's the Alexandrian, the Western, and the Byzantine. The Alexandrian, so those are the ones that we're pretty sure had scribe, actual scribe scribes working on these things. The quality is a lot higher. And they're the oldest manuscripts. Most of our oldest manuscripts come from these Alexandrian, the Alexandrian group. And then there's the Western group, which is there. It's not as huge. Um, Alexandrian is important because it's old and good quality. The Byzantine is really important because we have a gajillion of them. Um, Western is kind of in the middle, like, you're overshadowed by your two siblings who are just more important than you are. So what do you do with a Western text? Well, there's a few out there. So, um, but what the Western group has for us is probably the widest spread from North Africa to Italy, from Gaul to Syria, north, south, east, west. So it represented a kind of a large geographic area. And then the Byzantine group contains 80% of our current manuscripts. And so there is a, a church in the, Byz- so the Byzantine church in the Eastern Europe worked on those. And if, you, if you imagine, like, in you, if in your mind you think of monks like transcribing manuscripts, think Byzantine, you think of Byzantine there. That's what's happening. Okay. So now, modern translation, so like um, the Texas Receptus was based on one small sample from the Byzantine. Um, and then for a while, like, anything that you're going to work on was going to be like a large collection from the Byzantine. But then there, as we begin to find more and more Alexandrian, Western, and Byzantine, um, most translations take from all of them. Take the best of. Work them together, and that's what they refer to as an eclectic text. So, 
Okay, so now let's start talking about the variance or a couple of examples. Okay, so we'll start with a small one. Sexual variance, top page nine. The phrase in Ephesus is missing from four early manuscripts. So if you look, yeah, so if you're looking at, um, well, I guess this takes on. If you're looking at um, a Greek New Testament on the bottom, they have verses ranked. So if there's no rank on it, means there's no problem. If there's an A, there's a problem, but they're pretty sure they know what it is. If it's B, they're like, eh, we're pretty sure. If it's a C, they're like, okay, we're really starting to, like, we couldn't come to consensus, but, you know, it may be this letter, it might be that letter. And if it's D, then they're like, okay, let's have a talk, right? We're, this is, like, we have, like, some serious disagreements between manuscripts. Most verses rank in the A, B range, just a couple CDs. Um, far and away. So, um, Ephesus would, in Ephesus would probably be a B or a C, because, like, some really good quality manuscripts are missing in Ephesus. Is it a game changer? It is not. And in fact, actually, they, uh, I think I recall now, they rate this an A because there's so many other manuscripts that have NFs, NFs, NFs. We just figure, like, if 99% of manuscripts say NFs and 1% do not, you kind of think the 99% are onto something, right? So, okay. So now, that's the easy one. Now for the two big ones. These are the big two. The big two. Okay. Mark 16. Might as well turn there so you can like see some of these clues here. So this is the ending of Mark. All right, 16 verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary and the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to you, uh, going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Then they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay. Okay. Now, what does your Bible? What, did your Bible have any markings at this point? Okay. So this is all my like, just full disclosure, people. We're just gonna be honest. We're not sure if this is scripture or not. Like, if this one is there. So I have this note. Some of the earliest manuscripts not include 16, 9 through 20. And moving on. And now he rose on the first day of the week, and he appeared to first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him. As they mourned and wept, when they heard them, he was alive. They had been seen by her, and they would not believe it. And then, uh, okay, without reading. So then he talks to the two disciples. And then, so basically what you get now is like a summary of other Gospels in the book of Acts. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Stuff that happened to apostles, right? And so, okay, so what's going on here? So, so it's missing from two of the oldest Greek manuscripts. We're not saying it's missing from, like, it's missing from more of it, but the two of the oldest ones that we have, like the earliest copies of manuscripts, do not have this. 
I'm, I'm just reading down these notes, by the way. So Mark, textual, textual evidence is of a problem. Number two, the anti-Nicene writers. So that's second generation from the apostles. Apostles had the uh, apostolic fathers and apostolic, the next generation is anti-Nicene. So specifically Eusebius and Jerome. Now Eusebius was, the, was a church historian, and Jerome wrote the Vulcate. So the, the two guys are really interested in this question. They attest that the passages were absent from most Greek manuscripts known to them. So like, so we're like 200 to 380, like they, they're like, we have, like, we see that there's these two endings already. Uh, scribal notes. So like, um, okay, I'm not saying that, okay, I should be, I, I think I overstated. Scribes did make notes in the New Testament versions too. They, there's like this obelisk they'd write, like kind of like a, um, like elongated triangle to indicate when they thought there might be an error. They didn't necessarily tell you what they thought it was. They just put like, marking, FYI, there might be something right here. And we have lots of manuscripts with like markings next to the ending of Mark 16, saying like, we think there's an issue right here. And then, now that we have lots of, variant, lots of things to look at, there are four variant endings to the book of Mark. So, the most, the most common one is, of course, the one that you see right now. But there are four other um, endings that are not as important. Now, we don't just look at the textual evidence when looking at this. We also look at what we say is the internal evidence. Now, is there any evidence inside the passage itself that indicate there might be a problem? Oh, funny you should ask. Okay, so this is the one that I'm always a little bit like, they, this, this one gets overplayed a lot. But they say, one, the writing style and vocabulary changes from the early parts of Mark. Like, I'm okay with vocabulary changes. It doesn't bother me. But I can see what they're getting at. New vocabulary is employed. Um, the phrases are not written in Mark's simple style. So Mark is known for simple Greek sentences. If you're learning Greek, it's one of the first places they send you. Go translate Mark. Okay, you get to the end of these super wordy, complex phrases. You're like, what? Mark, what are you doing to me? Okay, it's like, this is way too hard. Okay, so there's some of that going on. And then, like, um, the Sabbath is referred to in a different, like, all the other times, Sabbath is called the Sabbath. And then right in this verse, he calls it something different. If it was him. Okay, bigger. Two, the subject in verse 8 is the women. And then... The presumed subject in verse 9 is Jesus. So there's like a, there's like a grammar change, like the, a grammar inconsistency. And then, third, Mary Magdalene, who had been introduced and then introduced and talked about, so it's going, there's Mary, Mary, and then it's like, Mary Magdalene, and then like, it starts over again, reintroduces Mary Magdalene, and then like, the other women who are with her are like, just gone from the scene. So it's like, there's like, kind of like, even like, um, a focus change, like all of a sudden, they're talking about this one lady, they reintroduce her. So all these things are like, between like, four different endings and all these different things, they're like, yeah, we're suspicious about this actually being the ending of Mark the way that Mark wrote it. So what's the ending of Mark? Yep, so that's the question. Um, now, I think most, okay. So the, the camp basically falls into groups. They say the ending that we have is it, and it's different, but it's it. Okay, and then there's the other group that says the ending at verse 8 is the ending. Like, it just, and they, astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid at the end. And then he was done writing. And that's the way he ended his book. Like, like, you know, and they live happily ever after, Mark, really? Not a happily ever after? How about the Great Commission, Mark? Like, it's like, no, that's where, like, where they ended up. So, like, maybe, 
And and by the way, the end of a like if these were scrolls, which they probably were in the beginning, the the um, last page is the most protected page. You think like it's the one that's got all the wrappings on it. So the chance of losing it was like the lowest. So um, I'm personally happy saying like the end early and then. Um, but so my conclusion: most likely, Mark in his gospel at verse eight. Less likely is the authenticity of the current. Reading even more or less likely is that the true ending has been lost. Just kind of like three options: either the end of the verse eight, or the ending that we have is the right one, or we don't even know what it is. But I kind of go for he ended at verse eight. Uh, but then again, like um, so, this is what they said: Is there any cardinal doctrines attacked by the fact that we don't have the ending of the Book of Mark? Answer, no, unless you're really into, like, snake handling. Like, that's where we're getting, like, some people make a huge deal about you can handle snakes and a guy not get poisoned. And, you know, I always feel sorry. It's like, you know, that may not be legit. Okay. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, so when I read this book, it was Paul and, like, Mark got that idea. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Paul did it, right? So that's what I think, yeah. So, But, like, it's, like, descriptive versus, like, this can happen to you kind of thing, right? So... Uh, John 8. So this is the woman caught in adultery. You know, ye who without sin among you cast the first stone. That one. All right, so actually, if you take a look at the end of verse 7, so like, uh, Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees, which happens a lot, apparently, because the Pharisees, okay. So chapter 7, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why do you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke to us like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, uh, does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before him and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search to see that no prophet rises from Galilee. And then, and then 53, then they went to their own house. Okay, and right here, you may, some, like, some Bibles don't even have this in there. Like, just, like, big gap, and then picks up again, and chapter 8, verse, you see the verse? I'm trying to find my little comma thing. Verse 12, okay? Okay, so what's going on here? So, again, it's missing from the vast majority of the oldest manuscripts. So, the older they go, the less likely you're to see this story in it. Two, no church father ever commented on this one. So, like, they commented on a lot of things, most of the Bible. This one just never, that's an argument for silence, of course. Maybe they, we just haven't found it, or they did, and we... Three scribal markings, a little obelisk. We're aware that there is a problem with this passage, and four, this is the best one. The passage shows up in different places in different manuscripts. So, it's like, where, is this, where does this particular story belong? And so, they have it, like... Here, they've had it at the end, towards the end. They have it. So they have like this story kind of like different manuscripts place it in different places. And one manuscript even has it in the book of Luke. So like, where does the story belong? I don't know. Okay. And then the internal evidence would be something like, so there's like this argument with the Pharisees and then the things. And then, and then Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Okay. 
And so it's like, it's almost like that the story is interrupting a little bit. It fits in the sense like Nicodemus just says, you can't condemn anybody without trial. Oh, by the way, that reminds me. Woman who they're trying to condemn without a trial. So it was like, maybe that fits in, but it interrupts the flow. Like, if you removed it, like, it reads perfectly smooth. And, like, there's no loss of, like, and Jesus kind of gets back into the conversation. So, um, because of those reasons, we just make a note, say, hey, this probably may not be, or maybe it is. And actually, so I was reading, like, actual, like, the thick books these people write about this one. Like, the people who are actually making decisions and say, it's like, okay, there is no scholar... I guess no is a strong word. The vast, 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 vast majority of the scholars who work on this do not think that this story belongs to John chapter 8. And they said, so why do we keep it in there? Because it's kind of scary when you take stuff out, right? So, like, especially when you have, like, it was in the Texas Receptus, because that's the copy that Erasmus had, and so it's in the King James Version, and people get kind of freaked out when you just, without, 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 without being able to sit down and have a long conversation, like, here's the evidence for why we think this. Just like, where's my favorite story? Like, why did you take it out of my Bible? Like, so it's just, yeah. So it's kind of a publisher issue. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the last 15 minutes or so, we'll talk about translations. So, so you have these manuscripts. They're all laid out before you. You say, ah, here, like, Vast, vast majority of agreement. Like, agreements everywhere. I mean, there's some letter changes. Um, but hey, not a big deal. And then we're... Actually, I have them right here. So FYI, so if you read a Greek, like any of the Greek publishing... Um, that's not the one I like. I like this one. Here. So if you're reading a Greek New Testament, they always include with it, like, okay, here's the rating. So for example, right here, I'll just duck out of the way. Verse 8, this is John chapter 15, so verse 8, or 7, so, so if anyone remains in me, that's not the one I was looking at, da, 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 da. oh, so 9, so um, even as the fathers love me, and I and you love you, okay, so verse 8 has this like this, da, 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 there it is, 1, gnaste is the word, it has a little footnote, you scroll down, and they rank it a C, like, uh-oh, what's going on here? They list out the manuscripts that are missing it, the ones that have it, um, and then some of the translations that have it, and they say, so what's up? What's, what's the concern here? Um, Gneste versus Gneste. So it's the difference between the an E and an I. Or right here, this Seste, S-E, which is a conjugation thing. So we're like, okay, is it an I, or is there an S-E in it? Or is it with an I? Like, it's like, um, now the reason why this probably C is because Geneste and Geneste are like two words that probably could work. But most of them say Geneste. So that's a C. They can't decide between the two of them. But the point is still the same. Remain in Christ. So, um, so that's what most people work with when they're working through this. Okay. So when you're translating, there's three ways. So, you know, there's lots of translations nowadays. And there's kind of three translation theories. So when you're communicating, so the point is to get the original message into words that someone can understand what is being spoken. Now, um, like we, like as a, as a world society, 
We do this all the time. We're translating things into other languages, and, every, and like the world functions with markets and governments and all this. It works out just fine. It works out fine with Bible too. Okay, there are three translation theories. Word for word, thought by thought, and idea by idea. Okay. Now, um, word for word, it's good advertising. You can't actually do word for word. You always have to make some interpretive decisions. You can't say word by word by word. By word. It'll just like be gibberish. You wouldn't understand it. But what they try to do is like try to like not break things up. They, t- they take smaller slices and translate it over. So examples of word for word would be the King James Version and the NASB. When I first started reading scripture here at RCF, I used the NASB, and I would be tripping up all the time because it was bad English. Like, what is this? And so I finally started reading out of the ESB, and I'm like, oh, it flows. Okay, so like, so NASB, I like reading it when I'm trying to think about like the word, like when I'm trying to like be lazy and actually not look at the original language and like just read the NASB. It kind of clunky, but it kind of gets the job done. And then it's thought by thought, saying, okay, so instead of trying to like take small seconds, like take the whole verse, what's the verse saying? And try, and like feel free to kind of reform it around a little bit and like, so that it makes sense in English. And so they tend to read better. So ESV somewhat does that. Sometimes they get stuck in the word for word in bad ways. They're really bad with idioms. Really bad sometimes. Um, and so the NIV. NIV has gotten a lot of bad flack over the years. Bad press. Um, I like it. It does a good job. And like the more, and like the more I, like, if you had asked me this like eight years ago, I'd be like, no, NIV is evil, right? But then like, okay, now you, okay, you try translating and just see how hard it is and like what's going on. So like, so I remember, I distinctly remember this time where I'm like in seminary, I'm going to try, and I'm trying to translate this passage. And like, I know, okay, so after like 10 minutes of studying, I'm like, I, okay, I totally know what's saying in Greek. How do you say that in English? And so, like, I try to write it out, and my friend's like, no, 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 you totally missed this part of it. I'm like, yeah, I did. It's like, well, what did you do? He's like, yeah, I wrote it like this. Like, no, 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 you totally missed this other part of it. He goes, yeah, you, yeah, I did. I'm like, I wonder what our translation did. And then we open, so just open the translations. We're like, brilliant, brilliant. You got it all. <laughs> like, it just, like, carried everything across. I'm like, see, these guys are pros. They know what they're doing. <laughs> these are not, you know, these quacks that don't know what they're doing. These people spend a lot of time, and they know a lot more than we do. Okay. And then this idea by idea. So, like, the New Living Translation and the message, which I don't know what your feelings are on those, if you have a feeling at all. Okay. So, like, you get problems like this. What do you do when a culture doesn't have sheep? So, you're in Papua New Guinea, and it's like, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. A what? So, you know, those cute little fuzzy things that, like, would be really brute, like, horrible to kill, and, like, it's like, oh, white, and then, like, get blood on it. Like, and, like, a what? It's like, it's like your pigs. Like, oh. Like, but what are you going to say? Behold, the pig of God takes away the sins of the world? So what are you going to do when you get to a pig? Like, uh, Like, okay. So that's the problems you're up against, right? You're trying to communicate these ideas. So, like, are you going to communicate? So you got option number one. Just say it's a sheep and explain what a sheep is. They're smart people. Like, they're human beings. Adults. They can figure this out. And teach them what a sheep is. Or do you say a pig, something that's in their language that they understand? So you have, like, so that's, like, kind of the tensions that people are in. Um, recently, there's this huge one with, like, uh, people translating, translating versions into dialects of... Um, Arabic, with the idea of the Son of God. Now, if you say Son of God to a Muslim, they automatically think that you're saying Allah had relations with Mary, and it's like, just in their head, they have this like horrible image, and like, no, no, no. And it's like, no, no, what we mean is, like, you know, this, there's this uh, Son of God is in like the Trinity, and, the, and so like, so, but there's like the immediate offense. So like, some people were like, saying, like using other phrases, not Son of God, and it kind of 
and they weren't being really transparent about that. And then a bunch of people found out, and the church was like, do what? You're not translating the Son of God, what? And then it was like this brouhaha, and they don't do it anymore. But, I mean, you can understand the tension, right? They're trying to get this idea over into another thing. And then, meanwhile, while you're trying to, like, you're trying to translate the Bible into every tongue, tribe, and language, right? You're trying to get it out there. And there's publishing deadlines. They, they will only pay you for five years of work. And if it's not done in five years, they're not going to give you another five years of work. Um, and then, by the way, like, new information comes out, like a better manuscript. You're like, oh, that solves everything. So then, like, you wish that you had another five years. Um... So what they do now, actually, this is like almost all the major translations doing this. They have active committees that are still working on these problems. So um, NIV, ESV, NASB, they have people sitting down right now, working together, like slowly working through problems that they had to like just go over quickly when they originally translated it. And so some of the things that they said, we can't resolve this disagreement, may have just been a time issue. We couldn't resolve this because we didn't have time. Next. And then they moved on. So now, like, Zondervan and all these publishers are giving, like, paying these people to stay on staff. And we're talking, like, legit, th- this is fun. The guy who chaired the ESV translation in the first place, he's now the chair of the NIV's committee. They're all friends, just working together. Yeah. Okay. Translating Hebrew, <laughs> hard. Um, so Hebrew is a very pictor- pictorial language. And there are lots of idiomatic statements. It's a really beautiful language. Like my little, little, like two years of understanding of Hebrew. Um, so you get fun stuff like God's anger is described as the heat of his nostrils. It's like, and, and then with the heat of my nostrils, and you're like, wait, translate again. No, it really says nose. The heat of his nose. What is going on? Which is just an idiot. Like when people are really, really mad, what happens? Like, Hot air, like sweat, like so. It's like so. It's a very pictorial way of saying angry. So now, like to us, like looking at that culture, like what are you talking about? But to them, they totally know what's going on. Like it's just a word picture for anger. And then God's like patience is described as his long nose. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's like, but they understood this to me. Like so, like if God, if God's anger is like the heat of his nostrils, then his patience is the fact that it's going to take his nose a long time to heat up. <laughs> That's kind of like one of the weirder like cultural differences between us and the Hebrews. <laughs> yes, so we just say patience. Okay, okay. Now, uh, but then there's other good ones like forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is a word picture. It literally comes from the word to lift. So it's like like something's lifted off of you. Because in in the in the law, like if you had your sin, you bore your iniquity. So when God forgave you, He lifted the iniquity from you. Okay, so there's like a lifting. And then the other thing is like, and then, but then the weight has to go somewhere. Where does it go? And it goes onto the sacrifice. And so like, that's when they placed their hands on the sheep or then God eventually placed our sins on Christ and he took the weight. And then transgression is crossing a line. So literally like the word means to cross a line. So transgression is like, God said, don't do this. He said, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. Versus sin, which is to miss a mark. They talk about an archer who couldn't hit anything. Yeah, you sin a lot, dude. You just can't hit the mark. Like you're trying your hardest, but you just can't make it work out. And so that's the idea of sin in the Hebrew language. And so, so you get the, these like these really beautiful word pictures. And so, like, and so how do you like communicate them across? Like, well, you know, you just you have the word transgression, the word sin, and hope that you begin to understand what's going on from the context of the Bible. When we really have a hard time, we like to look at the Septuagint. Like, what is that word, and what does it mean? Especially those idioms. So in um, 
the fun one in Hebrews chapter six, the Neph- or Genesis chapter six, the Nephilim, the Nephilim. What are the ne- and so like like what are the Nephilim? And everybody's like, yeah, what are the Nephilim? <laughs> like we don't know what these Nephilim because it literally means it's like a little the fallen ones. Okay, like what do you mean fallen ones, right? And so the in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, they call them gigantes, giants. So that's where the idea of like the giants. So like. So you go like, okay, Hebrew scholars, what did you guys translate this into? Like, we translate giants, like, and giants roam the earth, right? <laughs> like, this, our best shot at it. So those translations, so like the Syriac's helpful, the Septuagint's helpful when we get stuck. Okay. Okay, now, uh, I have here, so Isaiah twenty-eight thirteen. So here we go. Here are the, I grabbed a word for word, phrase by phrase, and um, idea by idea. Isaiah twenty-eight thirteen. Twelve. Oops. Is there an eleven somewhere? Psalm five. We'll start there. We'll start with an easy one. Psalm five four. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. So, it's good. NIV, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and deceitful. You, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Reads like English, right? That's, so, and, and the ideas are still, if you kind of cross-compare, like all the ideas are kind of embedded in those texts. If you look at them, cross-look at it, it's like, oh yeah, talk about the same thing. The Message um, by Eugene Peterson. Peterson's? Any relation? No? He lives up in Montana, has this beautiful house overlooking a lake, and he translates the Bible and writes good books. Um, and so he, he, so he never intended, like it's really, this is a really popular version like, he understands its advantages and its limitations, and he never says, like, use this as your main Bible, but he thinks this is a guy. He wrote it for himself, first of all. It's like his, it's his translation project to him, like, that he's working on, and that he wrote this thing, the message. Yeah, it's personalized. You don't socialize with the wicked or invite evil over as your house guests. Hot, hot, hot dash air dot, hot air boasters collapse in front of you. You shake your head over mischief maker. God destroys lie speaker. Bloodthirsty and truthbender disgust you. And here I am, your invited guest. It's incredible. I enter your house. Here I am. Okay. <laughs> now, we're not, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like, what are you doing, dude? Okay. But here's the crazy thing. This guy, okay. This guy knows his Hebrew well. Like those hot air boasters, mischief maker, lie speaker, bloodthirsty and truthbender. Those are, okay, gr- uh, grammatical word. Participle. Participle is like a verb personified as a person. So like, like hot air boaster is literally like braggarts, like to brag, but stated as a noun. And so he's actually translating them as far as, he's actually doing it a really good job. It just sounds like, <laughs> so he's actually nails it. But here's the thing, like the thing with Eugene Peterson, like sometimes he nails it, sometimes like, I'm not sure. Oh, you nailed it again. I'm not sure. But when he nails it, he really nails it. Okay, so I like to read it. Especially, especially as Hebrew. So he does that. Okay, so Psalm 5. Okay. 
Isaiah 28. Here's a fun one. This is one I like. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. Now, they may go and stumble backwards, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Okay? NIV. So then the word of the Lord will, to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. So as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Okay. Quite a bit different, actually. Okay. The message. <laughs> So God will start over with the sample basics and address them with baby talk, one syllable at a time. Da, 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 blah, 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 blah. That's a good little girl. That's a good little boy. And like toddlers, they will get up and fall down, get bruised and confused and lost. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what it says in Hebrew? Ka, 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 ka. La, ka, la, ka, la, ka, la, ka. And it's not Hebrew. It's like, it's babbling. So this is like, this is one of those passages. So, so, the first rule of thumb, if you look at multiple translations and they're saying wildly different things, that's because there's a really confusing verse that they're trying to translate and they're doing the best job they can. So in, in Isaiah, in Hebrew, it's like, and they'll be to them, ka, 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 la, ka, la, ka, la, ka, la, ka, la, ka. It's like babbling, okay? And so, um, so what do you do with that? <laughs> like, how do you translate that? And so, so when we came up to it, it's like, how are we going to translate that? Septuagint, what did you do? And Septuagint said, line upon line, precept upon precept. That was their way of like communicating the idea. But the idea was that this, this ruling nation is going to come, kick down your door, drag you away, and when you try to speak, and when they try to speak to you, it's going to be like babies talking to each other because you don't know the language. And so, but in the Hebrew, it's very pictorial. So he literally just, ka, 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 la, ka, la, ka, la, ka, yeah, so, and just babbles at them. So then, the message actually didn't do too bad. <laughs> Go, Eugene Peterson. Okay. All right, and then, um, real quick, with uh, translating Greek. So, in Greek, this is actually not really going to be super easy to do, but there are two Greek grammar ideas, time and act. There's two in, in language. A verb has two things. When did it happen? How long was the action? So, there's like time, past tense, Present tense, future tense. Okay. And then there's aspect. Like, how long did that action, like, occur? So, if you look down, I have, like, these quotation marks. So, the idea of aspect. So, these are all in the present tense. I washed the car. I am washing the car. I have been washing the car. I have washed the car. All kind of conveying something that happened in the present. But, like, I washed the car versus I am washing the car. It gives you a different kind of picture, right, of what's happening. Like, I am washing the car, Dad. Right? Versus... I have been washing the car forever, Dad. Or, I have washed the car. Like, I just did it right now in the present. Like, it's just right there in front. Okay, so like, those are all different ways to communicate aspect. Now, the, the whole thing, so the hard thing with Greek, if there's going to be a problem translating something from Greek into English, is that in English, we communicate time with our words. How do you do a past tense? ED, right? You just change it or change the word. And then if you want to do aspect, you add a bunch of filler words around it to kind of help you out. Has, have, all these different things. And Greek exactly flipped. Greek does aspect first, and then if they want to tell you when this occurred in time, they add filler words around it to tell you that. And so sometimes that can just be a problem, communicating that in English, sometimes. Oftentimes they do a pretty good job. But the 
But there is one tense in Greek that we do not have an equivalent for in English. And that's the one that traditionally really trips people up. And it's what's called the perfect tense. So the perfect tense is a tense that says, like, this happens and the effect of it is ongoing. And so it's, it's duly emphasizing the when it happened and the current ongoingness of that action. So um, if you look at this, some of these examples are here. So Ephesians 2.8. So I use King James and NASB, and then the message doesn't help out that much, so I don't underline anything. For by grace are you saved, or for by grace you have been saved. Okay, so in this verse, it's technically it's this one tense. It's a little bit hard to translate over. So it's emphasizing both things simultaneously. Grace saved you, past tense. Grace is saving you, present tense. But don't split it up. It's all one thing. Yeah. Okay, Romans 5.2. Um, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. NASB. Through whom we have also have obtained our introduction. Now, the word introduction, not there in the Greek. They threw in the word introduction just to help you out with that weirdness of the perfect. So we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Okay. So in this case, they're trying to emphasize the fact that you gained access in the past and you still have that access right now, but it's the same kind of thing. Don't break them up. That access is yours in Christ Jesus. And wherein we stand. So you stand then, you're standing now. It's the same thing. And then you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the bold, bold, perfect, perfect, present. So there's this, there's this thing that happened to you. You had access by faith into his grace. His grace is yours now, it's you, is yours then, is yours now, and you're standing in it as you have then and as you are now. And this produces like a right, and then he changes tenses to make this dramatic effect so you rejoice now. So the rejoicing is like this visceral right now experiential moment sort of thing. So the, our current rejoicing is based on this like ongoing past thing that happens, this axis of grace. Okay. So like there's stuff like that. So if you see like translations giving you kind of like different, like have introduction. Where does this say introduction? Chances are they're just trying to get that one, I'd, that concept across, which is a little bit hard to do in English. But besides that, Greek is actually, Greek, Greek and English are more similar than dissimilar because it's a parent language, as opposed to like Hebrew to English. It's a lot harder to bridge, I think, at times. Um, word order, it's not a big deal. Read it on your own time. Like, you don't have to, Greek, you don't have to write things in order. So if you really want to emphasize something, you can shove a word all the way in front of the sentence just to make, like, make it stand out, and you can't do that in English at all. You can't rearrange your sentence without sounding like a Yoda. So you don't do it. But, so sometimes you miss some of that oomph, oomph, like right there. Like, oh, yeah. God's up front on this one, right? So, yeah. Okay. So my takeaway, though. So the thing is, like, like should every Christian learn the original languages? No. Because there's really smart people who already did this for you. Okay. Um, I find it helpful, um, personally, to d- deepen and enrich. Um, most of the time, I find it as a good tiebreaker. Like, if I'm reading a verse in English, I'm like, does he mean... Because you can take an English word and it's like, do you mean it this way or that way? And like, so if I'm like tied on an English word going this way or that way, I look in the Greek and I'm like, oh, it can only go this way. Ta-da, easy, done. 
So I use it a lot of times for that um, and some other stuff that's too complicated to talk about. And But um, I think the better thing to do is just look at multiple translations. So when you're, when you're reading your Bible, use your favorite Bible. When you're memorizing scripture, use your favorite Bible. Okay. If you ever want to do like a dig in, knuckle Steve, like get into some scripture, pull out two or three and cross compare. Just kind of keep three of them open in front of you. Do one from like each kind of style and just see what's going on. Cause sometimes you'll like, when you see, when they're all agreeing with each other, keep moving on. There's no problems. If it ever like, whoa, whoa, these are two different things. Okay. That's when you pull up in a good commentary, um, or some type of help. I gave you at the very, very, very end, the netbible.org. They have the best um, study Bible for language, in like accessible language. So that's like what they specialize in. They're a bunch of Greek geeks who wrote the Bible, wrote this Net Bible. So, it, like, if I ever get stuck and I don't want to pull up a big old commentary, I go to netbible.org first and see if they have a footnote. Oftentimes, that gets it. And if I have anything more than that, then I go on a study. No, it's just the Net Bible. Yeah, but the, yeah, I don't read it for the translation. I read it for the study notes. I shouldn't tell them that. New American Standard Bible. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Seven after. But any questions? All right. If you have a question, you can come ask. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the culture of the Old Testament. What was going on back then? And we're going to read some like religious texts from other cultures back then. It's going to be cool.